Today's episode is brought to you by our favorite British streaming service, Acorn TV. Acorn TV gives you award-winning series across multiple genres, and it's all commercial-free. Mysteries, dramas, comedies, we love it all. And at the break, we have a striking show recommendation for you to check out. From both of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show. Because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and using our promo code LEGENDS. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code LEGENDS, to get your first 30 days for free. This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories of death and beyond from China and Scotland. And you'll see that if you make a habit of hanging out with dead people, well, make sure you bring the drinks. The creature this week is an oiled-up epic hero who's got the whole wide world in his pecs. This is Myths and Legends, episode 221, The Great Beyond. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. There are two stories today of life and death. The first one is a tale from China that doesn't really seek to anchor itself to anything historical, so we can just jump right in. And I'll introduce some of the different cultural elements as we go along. Xu reclined on the riverbank, took a sip from his wine jar, and then poured a little out in the water, like he did every night, so those who had drowned in the river would have something to drink too. He held the net and sat back, settling in for a long night. He had been at this for years, and he was one of the most successful fishermen in town. He didn't know why he went home with a full basket every night, while those only a few dozen feet away from him, lining the riverbank, would go home with nothing, but many nights it was like that. As the best fisherman in town, Shu was by no means rich, but he and his wife were comfortable. One night, though, was a bad one. He could hear, down the darkened river, illuminated only by the torches from the road, all of his competitors playing big, struggling fish from the river. Shu sat back and took another sip from his wine jar. It was nearly empty now, which meant the sun would be up soon. Oh well. Everyone had bad nights. Then, Shu heard footsteps behind him. He turned, and a young man was pacing the smooth gravel of the riverbank. Looking at him, Shu nodded to the man, hi, not creepy at all, and held up his wine jar. Did the stranger want some wine? When Shu spoke, the stranger stopped and smiled. He said, no, thank you. He had quite enough already. How was Shu doing tonight? Before Shu could answer that he was doing pretty terrible, actually, the young man held up a finger. No worries. He would run downstream and drive them all up for Shu. Shu said that the young man didn't need to do that, and he wasn't actually sure that was a thing. If someone who's more into fishing than me wants to tell me if that's actually a thing, that would be great, because it doesn't seem like it is. The stranger wouldn't listen, though. He took off in a run downriver. The young man, the stranger, was so graceful that he seemed to float. When the stranger returned, Shu was about to pack up his net. The young man told him to wait. 
saying that there would be a number of fish arriving. That's when Shu felt the first fish. He brought it in quickly, and almost as soon as his net was in the water again, he got a second one, then a third, fourth, and more. He did a whole night's worth of fishing in under an hour, and he had to throw back the last two, because his basket was overflowing. The stranger celebrated with each one, slapping the fisherman on the back and helping him to stack them in the basket. Shu offered the stranger some fish for his help, but the man only smiled. Wouldn't be necessary. He had often enjoyed the fisherman's delicious brew, and if the man wouldn't refuse the stranger's company, he'd like to make this a regular thing. The fisherman shrugged. Sure, why not? He would like the company. Shu wasn't sure he had ever seen anyone so happy as the stranger when the man heard his reply. The stranger said that his name was Wong. He didn't have a given name, but Shu could call him Lo Long, or Sixthborn. Shu nodded and turned, bending down to pick up his basket. Well, nice to meet you. Where are you from, Sixthborn? But when he turned back around, Sixthborn was gone, without a sound, Batman style. Shu might have been curious how he did that, but after a whole jar of wine and a night spent by a dark, peacefully rolling river, he was ready for bed. True to his word, Sixthborn was back the next night, and the night after that. The pair spent each night together. The fisherman could see that Sixthborn was a nervous one, but a good kid. He was untrusting, reticent to open up. He had no confidence in himself. He was cynical. Sixthborn could see that the old man was done. He put on a happy face, but he had been doing the same job for over 50 years since his father had taught him how to do it. Now, he was doing it to survive. He didn't have any children. What legacy was he going to leave, other than a basket full of rotting fish? Still, both men found friendship in their time together. And, over the next few months, the fisherman found someone he could talk to like a son, and Sixthborn found a reason to trust people. Soon, the pair would sit and talk and laugh on the riverbank, sharing Shu's wine jar. Come morning, Sixthborn would chase the fish up the river, and Shu would catch them, filling up bigger and bigger baskets. Shu started to look forward to their nightly meetings. Six months later, the pair were best friends. Then, Shu arrived to Sixthborn sitting on the edge of the river. Head hung low, below his shoulders. Hey, buddy, Shu said, popping open his own seat and setting Sixthborn's wine jar down next to him. He started bringing the man his own each night. He wouldn't take any fish or money for driving the fish upriver each morning. Sixthborn looked back with a sigh and a half-smile. Shu scrunched his brow. What, what was wrong? The young man shook his head. Nothing was wrong. In fact, this was what he had been looking forward to for years, but he never thought he would feel sad about it. Basically, he was leaving. Shu was confused. He was moving, leaving town? Why? The young man took a deep breath and turned to his friend. He didn't know where he was going, but he was finally allowed to leave the river. The river? Shu asked. 
The young man nodded. He... He was dead. He was the ghost of a man who had died here a long time ago. Shu tried to act surprised, but the floating down river each night and the Batman exits had kind of given him away. Sixthborn pointed up to the bridge. Long ago, he was stumbling home. He had too much wine. He had fallen from the bridge into the river and he didn't even remember dying. But he woke up there, unable to leave. Shu was the only one who remembered them, who even thought of them, those who had drowned in the river. And he was so grateful for the libations every night that Shu caught more fish than anyone else. One night, he decided to rise and meet the man, but he never imagined they would become such good friends. That's what made this joyous day difficult. His term of karma had ended. He was free. Tomorrow, he would be reborn to another life on earth, and someone else would take his place. But tonight was all they had left together. Sixthborn would be reborn, and have no memory of his best friend. Shu laughed and slapped his friend on the back. This was awesome. It was sad that Sixthborn had to leave, of course, but his karmic term was over. His suffering was relieved. That was cause for celebration, not sorrow. Shu, the fisherman, was sad, of course, but his happiness for his friend's journey outweighed any desire for him to stay. He handed his friend the wine jar, and, with a reluctant smile, Sixthborn raised it for his friend's toast. A few hours passed on their last night together, before Shu asked Sixthborn who his replacement would be. The ghost pointed up to the bridge. High noon, tomorrow, a woman will drown as she's trying to cross the river. When she dies, she takes his place, and he's reborn. Shu nodded solemnly and took another drink. It was minutes away from noon the following day. Shu was tired. He should be sleeping. He tried to sleep, but his curiosity regarding Sixthborn's replacement wouldn't let him. So, instead of staring up at the ceiling, he figured he would go see Karma in action. It had been a tearful goodbye for both men, and though Shu had put on a brave face for his friend, it had been merely that, just a facade. He was forlorn at the loss of his best friend, happy though he was that the man was moving on. The sun reached its pinnacle as the bridge was all but vacant, save a lone woman crossing by herself. She was watching from a hillside by the riverbank so that he wouldn't be connected with what fate had willed. Shu squinted. His eyesight wasn't what it was, but he could swear that she was carrying something. He couldn't make out what she was carrying until she dropped it. When she stopped to look off the bridge, the baby in her arms wiggled free, kicked out, and plummeted into the river. The young mother didn't wait. She climbed over the railing and jumped in after the child. With a gasp, the mother surfaced, baby in her arms, crying. The mother tossed the baby, which, yeah, yikes, into the soft grass at the river's edge, and the child landed safely, just as the woman was sucked under by the current 
in the river. She rose, but then hesitated. Was this the will of heaven? Was this fate, that a young mother would die and her baby would survive as an orphan? Shu restrained himself from running to her aid. This was the will of heaven. This was fate. He knew this. Good people, necessary people died every day. It wasn't an evil, it just was. This was what he tried to tell himself as the woman struggling slipped deeper into the muddy river. Then she rose. She was near the riverbank where her baby laid screaming among the reeds. Then she stood, the firm riverbank replacing the treading of water. She fought through the water, running to her baby, who she scooped up, checked, and held, looking to the heavens with gratitude. She sat back. Huh. That didn't look like dying to him. We'll see the consequences of defying heaven, but that will be read after this. Hey, Sixthborn said with a shrug and a wave that night. Shu rushed up to his friend. Both men had arrived early, and Shu had to know what happened. Why didn't the woman drown? Sixthborn just said he couldn't go through with it. The years here had been difficult for him, and he had been a young man with no one when he died. Not a mother with a baby. He didn't know how much longer he would have to stay in the river until the karmic debt of directly disobeying heaven and changing a person's fate would be repaid. But whatever it was, it was worth it. No one should have to go through that. Shu smiled and passed Sixthborn his wine jar. He drank to that. But for what it was worth, he agreed with Sixthborn. He had wanted to save the young woman. He just didn't know if it was possible. Neither did I, Sixthborn admitted, a pensive look on his face. He didn't know what the cost would be for defying heaven. And he didn't know if he wanted to find out. And it wasn't a week before he did, in fact, find out. So, uh, turns out I'm being promoted, Sixthborn said to Shu. Shu set down his wine jar. Sweet, you gonna come back as like a dolphin or something? The ghost shook his head. No, he wasn't being reborn at all. He was going to be a god. His kindness and magnanimity had been seen by heaven. And a far off city needed a deity. And he was the ghost or his spirit for the job. You see, in the pre-Buddhist Chinese traditions, there was a local deity that protected the region, heard the prayers of the people needing help there, if they needed rain or food, and helped defend the city during war. Oftentimes it would be a deified magistrate or administrator to the city. But Sixthborn guessed that they had an opening because the job was his. He started tomorrow in the Wu Township. An upside of this, in addition to being a literal deity, was that Sixthborn would remember his life. He would remember his best friend. Their brotherhood would continue. Shu smiled. Well, he was happy for his friend, but that meant this was truly goodbye. 
no roads connected gods and men. The old fisherman patted his young ghost friend on the back. Look how far the man had come. If the cities of the world were looked after by upright men such as him, well, that was a world that Shu wanted to live in. The ghost looked up, nervous, and asked if his friend would come and visit him. It was a big new position, and he needed a friend. The elderly fisherman, despite doing the mental math to figure out just how far away Wu Township was, and the cost and danger of the journey, could see how much it would mean to his friend. How much Sixth Born needed him. Sure, yeah, he would leave immediately. Shu's wife had to sit down. So, okay, the man you've been talking to by the river each night is now a god in a faraway village, and you want to travel hundreds of miles in medieval China to go see him? Do you have any concept of how far that is? Have you read Journey to the West? It is so dangerous out there. The fisherman simply replied that he had faith. She would be fine, too. He saved all the extra money from all the extra fish over the last six months. And she would be comfortable at least until he returned. She could see that he was serious. So she let him go. The couple said goodbye. And Shu set out on the road. The road was long. He used his money to stay at inns and hostels when he could. But more often than not, he camped off the road. Though he was wary of bandits and ogres and superpowered monkeys and whatever else might be lurking in the dark forest... He pressed on. He knew how much this meant to Sixthborn. Finally, after weeks of travel, he arrived at the hostel in Wu Township. He set his money down for the innkeeper, but the man pushed it back. When Shu met his eyes, the man was beaming. You must be Shu, the man said. Shu nodded. Yeah? Why? The man took Shu's money and folded it back into his hand. He had been dreaming about Shu for weeks. The entire township had, actually. They all had wonderful dreams of their local god, telling them that his good friend, Shu, was coming to visit. And when he did, the whole township was to take care of him. Everything he needed, food, lodging, traveling money, wine, he liked his wine. He would pretend like he wasn't deserving of it like he was just some ordinary fisherman, but they shouldn't let the man's humility fool them. Their local god was who he was because of Shu. So, it wasn't long before Shu found himself surrounded by a town offering him food, begging for him to stay at their houses and giving him gold. In the end, he refused most of it and didn't ask for much, only a jar of wine and directions to the temple. The people wouldn't let him rest, until they piled blankets in the temple. Since Shu insisted on sleeping before the statue of the deity, he took a long sip of wine, set the jar in front of the statue, his friend, and went to sleep. In his dream, he met his old friend at the riverbank, and they shared that jar of wine. Sixthborn said it was harder than he thought it would be, being a god. There were so many people crying out to him, he had to remain separate, removed. Sixthborn said that Shu didn't know how much it meant for him to visit, and the old man simply smiled. He was glad he did, 
as for the difficult business of divinity. The heavens wouldn't have given him this position if he couldn't handle it. But did Sixthborn know who knew him even better than the heavens? Shu. And as his best friend, Shu could say that he couldn't think of anyone better to look after these people. Sixthborn smiled, took a deep breath, and thanked his friend. He said that that was what he needed to hear. He thanked Shu for coming, and when Shu decided to leave, he would see his friend off. When Shu awoke the next morning, the jar of wine was empty. Though the town tried their hardest to get their honored guests to stay, Shu couldn't be persuaded, not even with rotating week-long feasts at every house in town. He said he had a life to get back to. It was what their god would have wanted. On the day he left, the people shielded their eyes as a whirlwind, a small dust devil, kicked up next to Shu and stayed. Sixthborn held too trivial a position to manifest himself in person among the living, so this was all he could do. But the people still cried out, marveling at their god and his friend. It was four miles outside of the township when Shu finally stopped. The whirlwind lingered at his side, and he smiled a sad smile. He knew he didn't want to leave either. He didn't want their time to be over. But everything ends, even something as wonderful as their time together. It was time for Sixthborn to go. But the whirlwind still lingered. Shu could sense that it was scared. He set down his pack. I know you think you need me, but you've helped me as much as I helped you. You are and will always be my friend, but you don't need me anymore. Go and help these people with your kindness and your loving heart. Go and be everything you were meant to be. With that, the whirlwind hesitated a moment longer and then vanished. Shu hefted his pack, turned, and began the long journey home. When he found his way home, he hugged his wife, took up his net, and returned to the river. Whenever he would meet a traveler from Wu Township, even years later, he loved to hear the miracles that their beloved God was working and remember the man, his friend, and their time along the riverbank. I like that this story is just nice. It's a story of two friends that transcends life, death, and more. There wasn't even a bad guy. The only conflict in the story is Sixthborn making the decision to be even kinder. The second story today also has to do with people returning from the great beyond, but not in the way that you think. And it starts with a few unexpected visitors to a tavern at night. Uh, I'll be with you in a moment, the stable boy called out as he heard the carriage pull up to the tavern. It was a busy night, and they were the only stop along the road for miles on either side. 
It was late October, and there was a chill in the air. So anyone who drove by around dusk usually stopped for a warm drink before continuing on their way. The young man just had to finish mucking out one last stall before he was able to get to the newcomers, but they were impatient. He stepped from the barn just in time to see the tavern door swinging open to let the two young men in. The stable boy sighed. Looks like he wasn't getting paid. He looked the horses over, fed them a bit, brushed them, and moved to climb atop the carriage to move it out of the road and off to the side of the tavern when he found that it wasn't empty. Oh, wow. Uh, sorry about that, ma'am. You should probably head inside with your friends. I'm going to move the carriage off the road, he said, and then held out his hand to help the lady from the carriage. But she didn't move. She sat calmly facing forward. The ostler, the stable hand, squinted. The sun had gone down by now, so it was hard to see. When he returned with a lantern, he staggered back. The woman was sitting there, facing forward, with a sack over her head. The young man scrambled up to the carriage and quickly loosened the bag, ripping it off, telling her that she was going to be okay. He was going to get her out of here. But when he loosened the hood, he was only met with a smiling visage of decay. The woman was dead. He shrieked and moved to put the hood back on to cover the maggots and rot that had already set in on the softer tissues. But then he stopped. He hesitated and looked to the floor. It was mostly dirt, trampled down in boot prints. The woman's skin, though preserved, was cold and gray. She had been embalmed. These men were grave robbers. The stable boy looked to the tavern and his shoulders slumped. These men, these men were resurrectionists, body snatchers, grave robbers. In this time in Britain, medical schools needed cadavers for dissection, but it was difficult to come by them legally, kind of. Edinburgh was a leading center for anatomical studies at this time, but only people convicted of murder, people who died in prison, people who took their own lives, and orphans could go straight to the anatomists. That only accounted for a few dozen, when hundreds of bodies per year were needed for anatomy. So the resurrectionists, or resurrection men as they were called, filled a need. It was a legal gray area for a while, because while disturbing a gravesite and or stealing from one was a crime, I guess no one technically owned dead bodies. So the resurrectionists either bribed or slipped past the guards that might be posted at cemeteries, exhumed the bodies, and made the sale to waiting doctors. As it became a bigger and bigger problem, there were measures put in place, like watchtowers with guards to look after the body until it had sufficiently decayed. Stone slabs over the site, or mort safes. Cages put around coffins to deter theft. But people found a way around these, and not everyone could afford them. This whole issue would eventually come to a head in the actions of Burke and Hare, who murdered their tenants to sell the bodies, prompting the public outrage to change some of the legislation regarding the availability of certain bodies to be cadavers. But back in our story, the young man looked around the carriage. These men obviously had money. This whole business, though dirty, could be lucrative, he guessed. He looked at the body of the young woman, stiff as a board, still sitting up. He thought about her on a table, sliced open, her organs being picked over, pinched, and weighed by old men. 
He shuddered. The stable hand looked to the tavern, heard the laughing inside. He was repulsed by the thought of people stealing and cutting up bodies, but what could he do? His boss, the owner of the tavern, wouldn't confront the men over one dead body, especially when they might not even be breaking the law. The stable hand looked to the road. Oftentimes mobs might confront the body snatchers at the graveyard, but this time of night, this far from town, the stable hand could take a horse and go gather a mob, but he might return to the body snatchers having already left and a beating from the tavern owner. No, there would be no justice, no rest for this poor woman. The stable boy sighed, sitting next to the body. He apologized to her and raised to put the hood back on. Then he paused, looking at her. Huh. The two men staggered out from the tavern. It had been a couple of hours, but they were good to go. They found their carriage alongside the tavern and saw her still sitting upright in the chill night air. They nodded, right where they left her, not that they expected her to move. All right. They still had some miles to go before their destination. Better get on the road. As the carriage bumped along the road, two men sat in front, and they gave the corpse the carriage to herself. The driver looked back. She was stiff. She was falling. They wouldn't pay as much for damaged goods. Would the other guy mind sitting her up and propping her up against the wall or something? The other man grimaced. Sure. He reached back, gripped her arm, and recoiled. What the? He tapped his literal partner in crime and pointed to the corpse. Feel her. Did, Did she seem to be warming up? The other man took his own glove off and felt the woman's arms recoiling. Yeah, what what was going on? Then the woman told them. Her hooded head turned to one man and then the other, saying, if you had been in hell as long as me, you'd be warm too. And then started cackling. The men shrieked and the carriage rocked as they bolted from it, still moving, out into the night. When he heard their footsteps retreating into the woods, the stable hand counted to ten and, with a laugh, pulled the hood off. A few maggots in his mouth and wearing a dead woman's dress for a couple of hours was fitting payment for a horse and a carriage. This was something resembling justice because he was certain the men wouldn't be back for it and they definitely wouldn't be robbing graves again any time soon. The stable hand pulled the carriage into the barn when he got back changed, and then grabbed a shovel. It was well after midnight now, and things had slowed down, so he had some time. He dug a deep hole, carefully placing the body of the woman in an unmarked grave, where she could thankfully, finally, rest in peace. happy endings on today's episode. Well, happy ending for the stable hand who rode off into the sunrise with a new carriage and a horse. Not so much a happy ending for the resurrection men or early modern medical training. Next week, probably won't be like this one. We're back in the Viking legends where the characters seem determined 
to never give their stories a happy ending ever. If you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a chicken harness, a harness you can put on your pet chicken to take it for a walk, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that will probably go better than the time I put the dog vest on one of our cats and tried to take him for a walk. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is a mala from the Shimshim people of the Pacific Northwest in North America. A mala means very dirty or smoke hole and is like a male Cinderella with rippling oiled muscles. But we'll get to that because he starts out life as the laziest, weakest younger brother of a big family. A young man who sleeps in ashes and also possibly his own urine. Yeah, things are not going well for little Smokehole. Amala, though, secretly gained super strength and became powerful, handsome, strong, and began saving people and performing feats of strength. Finally, his reputation traveled across the sea for the greatest task of all saving the world, or rather, maintaining the world. An aging chieftain with a thankless yet extremely important job sent word for a hero, and Amala arrived on the island in the Southwest Sea. There, he found the elderly chief flexing his oiled pecs. I, look, okay, I know this is common knowledge, but bear with me. On an island in the Pacific, a lone hero holds up the world on a pole either with his hands easy mode, behind his back, normal mode, or pinched in between his pecs, hardcore mode. I am not an epic hero, and I can't hold the world in between my pecs. But Amala could. And if you're worried about a guy holding the world in his pecs getting tired, well, worry no more. Because each year, a servant sails to the island to rub his muscles with duck oil. The restorative properties helping his pecs to recover and keeping Earth spinning like a peck-pinched plate on a pole for another year. That's why environmental conservation is so important, because if ducks ever go extinct for any reason, Amala doesn't have his duck oil for his exhausted pecs, and we all fall and die. So yeah, think about the environment, so Amala can keep his duck massages going, and so we can keep on living. The more you know. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And once again, thank you to Acorn TV for helping us keep this podcast free. For a rich catalog of stunning, award-winning shows we think you'll love as much as we do, try Acorn TV. Stream anytime, virtually anywhere, and if you don't know where to start, check out Wisting. We're on episode five. From both of us at Myths and Legends, we thank Acorn TV for sponsoring today's show. Because it's sponsors like Acorn TV that make what we do possible. Try Acorn TV free for 30 days by going to acorn.tv and use our promo code LEGENDS. That's A-C-O-R-N TV code LEGENDS to get your first 30 days for free. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>